Hey, everybody, before we get going this episode, I wanted to turn you on to an awesome event that's happening in a few weeks. If you're in the D.C., Maryland or Northern Virginia area or, you know, maybe somewhere else close by like South Central Pennsylvania, then I would like to personally invite you to attend the second official bar room blitz hosted by our friends at McClintock Distilling in Frederick, Maryland. The event will take place at the distillery on Friday, December 16th from 7.30 to 10 p.m. The first event back in 2019 was a huge success, and all through the pandemic, folks have been asking if it's going to make a return, so I'm happy to announce that it's coming back in a big way. Just like last time, we'll have six local bartenders slinging custom cocktails made with McClintock's award-winning spirits and liqueur portfolio, and you'll have the chance to vote for your favorites. The two bartenders with the most votes in the People's Choice round will then become team captains in the final showdown, where they'll be presented with secret ingredients that they'll use to create yet another round of custom cocktails for you to vote on. All the proceeds for this event will go to charities that these bartenders are there to represent. So head on over to the show notes page for this episode, number 249, or... Visit McClintock Distilling's Facebook page to find a link to Eventbrite where you can purchase tickets. Entry is $50 a person, which is quite, quite reasonable for the sheer variety of drinks that you'll be able to sample over the course of the evening. There will also be food from local vendors, and to top everything off, you'll get to enjoy my antics on and off mic as I MC the entire show. This is one of the best events of the year at one of my all-time favorite venues, so if you're free on Friday, December 16th, I hope you'll buy a ticket and join me for the second edition of McClintock Distilling's Bar Room Blitz. Now, on to the show. Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 249 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for this audio essay episode where we select one very specific topic in the realm of spirits, cocktails, and hospitality and place it under the microscope for rigorous examination. This time around, I'm going to do my best to break down a news item from my neck of the woods, Washington, D.C., and use it as a bit of a case study to figure out a better way to have public discussions about how to support our friends in the service industry, the bartenders, cooks, and front of house staff that make our experience dining and drinking out so enjoyable. Over the past several years, there have been a couple different attempts in our nation's capital to overhaul the standard American tipped minimum wage model of paying front-of-house staff for their services. The initial attempt in 2018 was ultimately unsuccessful, but in our recent 2022 election, things went differently, and now there are some serious changes in store for bars and restaurants in Washington, D.C., I think the larger experience of dining and drinking out is important to think about because, yeah, I mean, this is a podcast largely about home bartending, but so much of making great drinks at home is informed by what we see and enjoy when we're visiting our favorite bars and restaurants. 
And whether you happen to live in a place with a big, beautiful, vibrant bar scene or one where great drinks are a little bit harder to come by, it's useful to think about how certain historical, social, and economic factors play into that, which is exactly what we're about to do. I have to preface all of this by saying that I'm about to do something dangerous, maybe even just outright stupid. I'm about to wade straight into an inherently political discussion, one that was boiled down to a vote yes or vote no ballot initiative. And that puts me at risk for alienating certain people who feel very strongly about one side or the other of this debate. So I want to be very clear that I'm not here to champion one side over the other. That's just not how I operate. What I'm more interested in is tracing how we got to this juncture where we're trying to switch up our tipping practices. If the proposed changes are being structured and implemented in a smart, compassionate manner, and what implications this all might have on the dining and drinking out experience on both sides of the bar, at least here in Washington, D.C., in this first installment, I'll take you through some of the fascinating history of this cultural practice that we call tipping, both in Europe, primarily England, and here in the United States. And then I'll explain in detail some of the changes that are occurring here in D.C. Once that stage is set, I'll return in part two to kind of pick through the widespread implications of this legislation and try to summarize a list of takeaways that will hopefully help you converse and vote intelligently about this topic if it appears on a ballot in your jurisdiction. This is a beefy topic, a dense topic, a flourless chocolate cake of a topic. So I'll understand if you don't choose to listen to this at the gym or during your next run, but I do hope you'll give it a chance because this subject matter doesn't seem like it's going to go away or get simpler to deal with anytime soon. With that, let's jump into the rather fascinating history of tipping in Europe and the United States. Think about the kinds of places and situations where you tend to give tips. There's bars and restaurants, of course, but also hotels, at spas, when a valet parks your car, or even when you get food delivered to your home, right? The pizza delivery guy. Clearly, one of the things these situations all have in common is that a specialized service is being rendered to you. But, I mean, that doesn't really clear anything up. Your bank teller renders a specialized service, as does your bus driver and your electrician and your attorney and pretty much anyone else whom you pay to do a thing. So if it's not the specialized in nature of the service that signals the need for a tip, then where did this set of social expectations come from? Well, as it turns out, tipping as we know and practice it originated in medieval Europe as an informal gift conveyed by a lord upon a servant who had provided either exceptional duty or fallen under special hardship. It was voluntary and completely unstructured in those way back times because the servants who would receive this special dotage were in absolutely no position to demand or enforce it. It was just something nice that maybe happened every once in a while. This medieval time period where Latin and Germanic language families were actively evolving into the set of Western languages in use today 
also gave birth to a few terms that we would do well to stop and examine. The first of these is the word host. When you go to a restaurant, this is the person who greets and seats you. But in the Middle Ages, this was literally the lord of the manor, the person who controlled all the land and material and human resources that, if you were an honored visitor, would be harnessed to feed and entertain you. According to my favorite etymology resource, etymologyonline.com, the word host is derived from a, quote, proto-Indo-European root meaning stranger or guest host, properly someone with whom one has reciprocal duties of hospitality, representing a mutual exchange relationship, end quote. And if you zoom out just a little further and start fiddling with the word hospitality, you can see that the term is composed of the roots hos or host, meaning stranger, and poti, meaning power, the root of words like potency, potentate, and potential. So hospitality, based on its most essential definition, is a mutual exchange relationship between someone who has power, usually some sort of lord, and a stranger or visitor. Another term that comes into play here is the word patron, which of course is what we call someone who goes out to a bar or a restaurant and pays money for their food and drink. The etymology here, of course, is less obscure, derived from the Latin patronus, meaning father. So with this second, pretty straightforward reference to a downward power dynamic between the person receiving a service and the one ultimately providing the labor, it's apparent that the origins of today's hospitality industry are entrenched in some pretty elitist classist history. I mean, think about it. What's the functional difference between saying, hi, my name is Eric and I'll be your server today and hi, my name is Eric and I'll be your servant. By the late 15th century, the practice of tipping in Europe became known as giving veils. That's V-A-I-L-S. And here, instead of a lord giving a few coins to his own servant for good service, veils involved the guest of a lord or estate providing this monetary compensation to the servants who waited on them during their visit. This word, veils, is derived from the Latin valere and the French valoir, which both mean to be of value. It also has a shared root with the French avale, meaning to lower, especially to lower one's eyes as a sign of submission. From this root, we also derive the word vassal, as in one who literally stands under a lord. With the advent of giving veils, we can truly see the origins of our modern system of tipping. Unlike earlier in history, it's the guest providing the compensation rather than the lord or host. And as it became a more mainstream practice with advances in infrastructure and in travel over both land and sea, there was a social expectation that this practice would be upheld. But that didn't mean it was adopted in a blanket fashion all across Europe and the Americas, and it certainly didn't mean that everybody was a huge fan of tipping their servants. In fact, by the 18th century, there was a widely held notion that the practice of giving veils had gotten maybe a little out of hand. According to Carrie Seagrave in her 2009 book Tipping, an American Social History of Gratuities, quote, Guests who visited private homes found servants flanking the door at departure time with the departee expected to satisfy them. Even British royalty complained about the high cost of visiting friends. 
An ungenerous guest supposedly might find his horse injured, or he might hear a footman mutter that on the next visit he would receive a plate of gravy on his breeches. The system of veils became so hated that groups of masters attempted to abolish it. At a meeting of the gentry and nobility in 1760 in Edinburgh, Scotland, it was unanimously agreed to abolish the practice of giving veils to servants. They also decided, with less enthusiasm, that it would be more honorable for both master and servant to raise wages. The attempt to abolish veils was taken up in London, where in 1764 a disturbance broke out at Ranelagh House in that city, in which the coachman footmen, and other servants of masters who wouldn't allow their servants to accept veils ran amok. Those servants, quote, began by hissing their masters. They then broke all the lamps and outside windows with stones, and afterwards putting out their flambeau, which little editorial are candles like Lumiere from Beauty and the Beast, pelted the company in a most audacious manner with brickbats, which are literally bricks, whereby several were greatly hurt so as to render the use of swords necessary. End quote. From this historical account from the 1700s, we can glean a few things. First, there's some obvious tension about who should be providing these servants with compensation for their work. Should it be the guests or, as evidenced by the Edinburgh Agreement in 1760, should the servants' wages be raised at the expense of the lords? This question of who's going to pay is still very much at the heart of the tipping debate today. And second, we see a darker, grittier edge of that ancient social contract I was mentioning earlier. We see servants actually enforcing good behavior from their patrons by threatening bad service and even in extreme cases with literal violence and rioting. Unlike the servants several centuries earlier who might see a gift of money if their lord was in a good mood, this class of servants is becoming more organized and more self-conscious about the role they play in the social economy of their culture. This episode is brought to you by Near Country Provisions. Yep, you've heard me singing their praises for the past year now, and to answer a question I'm frequently asked, yes, I still do a little happy dance when my monthly subscription shows up at my door on dry ice and in an insulated bag. I want to highlight a couple aspects of Near Country that normally take the backseat to their meat quality and their impeccable local sourcing, those being affordability and customization. I don't know if you've been paying attention to the price of groceries lately, but the cost of meat, even the factory farm stuff, has been skyrocketing. But because Near Country keeps things local to the Mid-Atlantic, your meat doesn't have to travel far, and it doesn't change hands half a dozen times before it hits shelves, meaning you don't have to pay for all those markups from middlemen. Every time I do a price comparison between Near Country and the grocery store, I'm blown away by the quality that I'm getting relative to the cost. And when it comes to flexibility, I've never worked with a subscription service where I have so much control. Let's say, for example, that you've got something against pork chops. Every month, Adam and his team send around a survey that allows you to say, hey, I don't want pork chops this month. Or, I don't want pork chops ever again. Or, a more reasonable request, I'd love it if you could include pork chops in my delivery every month. 
Preferences change, diets change, and special requests and cuts are always on your mind at certain times of the year. And Near Country gets that. They bend over backwards to help meet your changing needs. Head over to nearcountry.com and enter the code BARCART, all one word, that's B-A-R-C-A-R-T, when you sign up for your subscription to receive two free pounds of bacon or ground beef in your first delivery. And believe me, you'll be glad that you did. Now back to the show. If you're following along on the timeline, you know that there's another big event that happened toward the end of the 18th century, American independence. For a couple hundred years leading up to this point, the American colonies had been absorbing the culture of their mother country, England. But when the schism occurred once and for all, the notion of tipping became more of a back-and-forth conversation between Europe and America. And we really haven't ever gotten on the same page since. By this point in time, tipping had jumped the gap between the public and private world, coming to be expected at places like restaurants, a new phenomenon at the time, and hotels. And between Britain and America, the largest bone of contention seemed to be how large of a tip was expected, with the Brits taking, in many cases, a more conservative bent, and then grumbling when wealthy American travelers would come and spoil their servants. My favorite quote from Seagrave's text on this subject and around this time in the late 1700s comes from Scottish writer Thomas Carlyle, who is departing a restaurant in Gloucester, England. He writes, quote, The dirty scrub of a waiter grumbled about his allowance, which I reckoned liberal. I added sixpence to it and produced a bow which I was near rewarding with a kick. Accursed be the race of flunkies. End quote. Now, I thought that word flunky was kind of interesting. It's a word that I've always had a vague, intuitive sense about, right? It's clearly negative in connotation, and it describes a certain type of person. But this quote from Carlisle got me curious. So back to etymologyonline.com I went. Apparently, this term arose in the 18th century, right? So kind of contemporary with Carlisle and his little quote there, and it refers to a footman or liveried servant, perhaps a diminutive variant of flanker in reference to servants running alongside coaches. It was also used in the sense of someone being a flatterer or toady, and that's kind of the sense that kind of persists to this day. What I love so much about this little flunky rabbit hole is that it reveals the other side of the coin where patrons feel that they're actively being taken advantage of by these servants who are demanding higher tips, right? The gentry is being held hostage by the masses. And this feeling of being ripped off is an issue that also remains close to the heart of the tipping debate to this day. Remember, the term veils means value. And if you feel like you're getting nickeled and dimed and that everyone you encounter has a handout waiting for you to tip them, then you can see how that might make you take a certain stance regarding the practice. This raises the question of whether a tip is something essential or something inherently extra or above and beyond. Compare this notion of flunkyism, this world where every service is hyper-monetized and contains hidden fees and social expectations, with the sense of the word tip that pervades most languages today. One origin story for the word is that it's actually an abbreviation for the phrase to ensure promptitude, and that it came into common use in coffee houses in London during the late 1700s. 
Patrons would give their waiter a coin wrapped in a piece of paper with the letters TIP written on it, and the practice allegedly took off from there. From this story, we can glean that there may be multiple levels of service one might expect from a server, and that the presence or quality of a tip might encourage that person to go above and beyond by providing exceptional service. Seagrave also provides some other linguistic context, writing, quote, Other theories hold that the word tip comes from the Dutch tippen, meaning to tap, and referring to the sound of a coin being clicked against a glass to catch a waiter's attention, or that the word tip derives from the Latin stips, meaning gift. In many foreign languages, words for tip are associated with drinking because in many countries the tip began as a gratuity to enable the tippy to buy himself a drink. In French, pourboire means literally for drink. The German trinkgeld is drink money. The Spanish propina is from propinar, meaning invite to drink. Russia's nachai is the equivalent of for tea. And the Chinese komshao is tea money. It may be reasonable to surmise the word tip is a short form of tipple, to drink. End quote. So on one hand, we have a world inhabited by cronies and flunkies, all looking for a handout they don't deserve and getting ready to spit in your beer or spill a bowl of soup on you if you don't dole out a good enough tip. And on the other hand, we have a world where people who tip well get great service and their beneficence allows the waiters to go and have a drink after work, no doubt toasting the memory of their patron with a tankard filled of their favorite libation. If you've ever worked in the service industry, you know that neither of these descriptions reflect the truth of the world, and yet these stereotypes still have life in them to this day. Here in the U.S., after that initial kind of like divorce, I guess, from our parent country, England, tipping began as something that was viewed as deeply un-American because it established a caste system. And we had ostensibly just fought a war to separate ourselves from those feudal, monarchic European powers and establish a land where all men were allegedly created equal. This was such a widely and strongly held view that, according to one article, by the 1860s, this mindset had actually jumped the Atlantic and started gaining traction in Europe. This is where they kind of split off from us entirely and have evolved into what is largely considered a tipping optional culture where no tip is needed or expected when you go out to eat or drink. But while Europe was warming up to this more egalitarian approach to service industry wages, America was struggling with a major hypocrisy that would drive us right back into a system that we had previously claimed to abhor. In the wake of the Civil War, 1860s, 70s, 80s, 90s, there was suddenly a large number of freed black slaves in the Jim Crow South who were in need of work. But due to a whole host of factors, the only occupations really available to them were the same type of backbreaking agrarian labor they had done on plantations, or alternatively, life as a porter, waiter, or other service industry worker. So at a moment when it seemed that the practice of tipping was on the brink of being all-out banned in America, the temptation of being able to hire black workers 
in the Jim Crow South and beyond without actually having to pay them was an economic reality too seductive for many to pass up. So looking at all this from a super zoomed out lens, while the system of tipping in general comes from this classist, elitist, very feudal legacy, right? Lords giving money to their servants. The variety of tipped wage structure that pervades the United States in particular to this day is absolutely and without question, not only classist and elitist, but also a racist holdover from slavery designed to keep a certain class of people from rising above their status and means. Sure, there were some occasional weak attempts by certain states to ban tipping in the past century or so, and sure, there's been some legislation during the New Deal era and beyond aimed at making life a little better for tipped wage workers. But with the exception of just a handful of U.S. states, bar and restaurant workers today are facing pay conditions and legislation that aren't all that different than what Pullman porters and hotel maids and restaurant workers endured over a century ago. This brings us to recent legislation here in D.C. that represents a four-plus-year struggle to address how bar and restaurant workers are compensated with the goal of updating the model. Back in 2018, we saw Ballot Initiative 77, which was designed to incrementally increase the minimum wage for tipped employees to be equal to the minimum wage for non-tipped employees. This initiative actually passed with 55% of the popular vote, but it was struck down by the D.C. City Council and not submitted to Congress for approval. This is a crucial detail because it reveals something about how D.C. works as a municipality and... It's a flavor that many places won't experience when putting this kind of law on the ballot for a vote. So it's useful to pay attention to this. Because D.C. is technically a city run by a mayor, as opposed to a state that has a governor, but also because it operates kind of like a state as well and also happens to be the seat of the federal government, because of all that, because of all the weirdness of D.C., new laws need to be submitted to Congress for approval before they can take effect. It's weird, and it doesn't reflect how this sort of thing works most of the time, but it's just how things work here in our nation's capital. Well, because several people on the D.C. City Council, as well as our mayor, Muriel Bowser, happened to oppose this initiative, number 77, they looked at that narrow popular vote with the 55% majority and determined that this was actually not in the best interest of our fair city, and therefore, they actually voted to overturn Initiative 77 before it could even be sent to Congress for approval. As a rationale for this action, Council Chair Phil Mendelson stated, quote, The council amends laws all the time, and if a law is a bad law, it should be amended or repealed. It doesn't matter if the law was adopted by Congress, the voters, or ourselves. Mendelssohn also stated, 77 may be well-intentioned, but the very people the initiative is intended to help are overwhelmingly opposed. If we want to help workers, protect them from harassment and exploitation, there are better ways than Initiative 77. End quote. This thought brings up another important through line in the D.C. tipped wage debate. Harassment and exploitation. Based on the history we just reviewed, it's pretty clear that there's a classist and or racist exploitation kind of baked into the mere notion of tipped wages in America. 
But harassment, like active harassment, you go to work, you get harassed. That seems to have a more ethical and slightly less economic ring to it. Enter Ryan O'Leary. He's a former restaurant server who took it upon himself to do something in the wake of Initiative 77 being overturned, which is how Initiative 82 came to be, sponsored by O'Leary's DC Committee to Build a Better Restaurant Industry, or Dikitababri. It just kind of rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Here's his story taken straight from the About Us page on their website. Quote, Ryan O'Leary has been a resident of D.C. for 10 years and has worked for years in the restaurant industry as a server. A little editorial here. According to his LinkedIn profile, it looks like he worked for a couple places, including Chef Jeff's and Clyde's here in D.C. None of the news articles name any names, but hey, I don't know. It's right there in his LinkedIn. I figured I'd throw it in here. Back to the About page. He's worked as a server for years, most recently for one of the most successful and highest grossing restaurant groups in the country. For a long time, he viewed the harassment, discrimination, and instability as simply part of the job. The few times he did push management to respond to sexist and racist behavior, he witnessed both by customers and the staff, he was threatened financially, and in one case, fired on the spot. He put up with it all in the name of securing his livelihood his tips. After being laid off in the wake of the pandemic, more editorial here, looks like that layoff would have been from Clyde's. He realized he could no longer shrug off the disrespect he experienced and witnessed while working for tips. He was forced to confront how precarious our positions in the service economy truly were, how disposable we are considered to be, and how unjustly we were treated by an industry with a criminally low unionization rate, rampant wage theft, and of course, the indignity of being paid a sub-minimum wage. And the more he learned about this sub-minimum wage, the more driven he became to change it. After July 1st, the sub-minimum wage for tip workers is $5.05, only a third of the full $15.20 minimum wage. As a result, tipped workers in D.C. are over three times as likely to live in poverty and more than twice as likely to rely on Medicaid compared to the rest of the local workforce. He realized it doesn't have to be this way. We can be paid a living wage, get our tips on top, and allow restaurant owners to succeed. It's already the case in states like California, Montana, and Minnesota, where all workers, regardless of being tipped, are paid the full fair minimum wage. People are still tipping at restaurants in LA and San Francisco, even though their waiter is paid $15 an hour. He saw it firsthand in New York, where he visited a restaurant that pays all their workers, front and back of house, $30 an hour, while their most expensive menu item was a mere $21. It is possible. It is happening, and DC can do it too. As our nation's capital, we are in the unique position to prove to workers around the country what is possible and to push the federal government to give workers what they deserve, a full minimum wage with tips on top. End quote. So to summarize, O'Leary's primary reasons for reproposing this legislation, now called Initiative 82, seem to be the following. Service industry workers receive a sub-minimum wage. That's a bad thing. They are frequently harassed and subjected to wage theft by restaurant management. That's the implication, is that it's the restaurant management, those in higher power that are kind of orchestrating this harassment and wage theft. Other states and individual businesses 
have successfully implemented more equitable wage initiatives, right? So we've got precedents out there and therefore we, and in that we, it includes both patrons of these restaurants and the workers who are, who work there should rise up and demand the same good treatment here in DC, right? The same basic minimum wage. I'm not going to start analyzing these details here because I mean, that's for part two, but suffice it to say that O'Leary's rallying cry was sufficient to leverage almost 74% of the vote a few weeks ago, a much more compelling showing than initiative 77's 55% that just kind of squeaked by and then got squashed. This time around, though, Councilman Phil Mendelson had no interest in proposing to strike down this legislation, which means that as long as Congress doesn't alter it during their 30-day review period, it will take effect. The timeline will extend from January 1st, 2023, where the minimum wage will squeak up just a tiny bit, just up to $6 an hour, and conclude on July 1st, 2027, after a successive series of other increases when the minimum wage will become equal to that earned by non-tipped employees. So all in all, we're looking at a roughly five-year implementation period, which has both costs and benefits, as we'll explore in the next installment. Of course, there were mixed reactions to the passing of Initiative 82. A lot of folks were thrilled, obviously. You know, that's a good, solid majority of the popular vote. And on the other hand, a lot of folks were dismayed. I happened to be at a meeting of the DC Craft Bar Guild on election day, and I can verify that there was a decent amount of trepidation in the room about what this legislation could mean for their day-to-day -day lives. These are the bartenders who are literally behind the stick when you go and visit your favorite bars here in DC. That's about it for this episode. I'm going to leave you right here at the cliffhanger before we dive into the analysis in our next installment. But what I'd like to implore you to do is to take the information that I provided here, all of this context, these centuries and centuries of history that are kind of leading up to this moment where we find ourselves right now, where we're really questioning some of the practices that we're doing and we're trying our best to make intelligent and compassionate decisions about how we're going to move forward. I want you to think about all this, kind of marinate on it, and then come back next week in our next episode and work through some of the analysis with me. As I mentioned earlier, I'm not here to champion one side of this cause or the other. I'm very likely going to try and poke some holes in both sides. But the reason why I'm doing that is because when we go out to a bar or restaurant, these people who receive these tip minimum wages and who we show gratitude to with our tips, we so rarely have an opportunity to show them the kind of hospitality that they show us. And so when we have these rare moments where something's literally on a ballot that impacts in a big way the way that they lead their lives, I think it's incumbent on us to try and think hard about it and vote with compassion. And so that's a lot of what we're going to be talking about in the next episode. So with that, I'm Modern Bar Cart CEO Eric Koslick. This has been part one of our two-part series on the tipped minimum wage and how it is 
starting to change here in America. And I look forward to seeing you here for our conclusion next time. Cheers. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Barcart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed and a little bit of history reading, word origin sleuthing by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2022.